1: Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan. For the fans of the Houston Astros, here is your host, Rob Fontenot.
0: Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Astros Baseball. My special guest tonight is Tom Gilbert, the author of the book, How Baseball Happened. Tom, how's it going?
1: Excellent. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm thriving in captivity here in New York.
0: Oh, yeah? You're on lockdown over there? Well, we're not
1: totally on lockdown, but there's nothing much open. They're just starting to open restaurants and bars here, and
0: uh, there's not a lot to do. I think your uh, COVID cases are going down, and here in Texas, it's getting worse, so congratulations yeah. on that. Well. Yeah, it's a missed blessing. It was it was very bad for a while here, but it is, thank God, it appears to be uh, appears to be ending here. So you live in Brooklyn? Yankees or Mets fan? I am a Yankees fan.
1: Um, my whole family always has been, and my mother was the kind of Yankee fan that people love to hate. She just thought a normal part of the baseball season was the Yankees winning the World Series.
0: World Series, yeah. or it was a was wasted just, season. That was huh? just what happened at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so, and if, it didn't, if they didn't win she didn't notice so you grew up in Brooklyn? no I grew up in Connecticut oh okay and my mother was from New Jersey and my dad is from New York and, um, but the whole family was uh, well my dad was actually a Giants fan but that's another story oh, okay. they left in 1957 so when did you get into baseball? are you a big baseball fan? is that why you wrote this book? Uh, Absolutely, and and out of a love of history, too. Um, When I was a kid, uh, baseball was the number one sport, that and ice hockey where I lived, because we had ponds.
1: Mm -hmm. And um, I played baseball, and loved baseball, Um, and I paid a lot more attention to playing it than watching it. But as an adult, I moved to the city, and whenever I go, I'm interested in the history of the place and, and why things are the way they are, and baseball when you start reading the history of New York and Brooklyn, you realize how much baseball is part of it,
0: even to a degree that people don't really appreciate. Are there, are there still any, uh the things go together. Are there still any older people there in Brooklyn that, that their love moved to Los Angeles with them or are there, they're Yankees? Uh, that's a tough question. Now, most of the, um, you know, the years have
1: passed and, and there aren't that many of them around, but are still Dodger fans and, um, they, you know, they were in a tough position. Some of them kind of rooted for the LA Dodgers for a while. I don't think it was most of them. Most of them went to the Mets because it's the National League, hmm. and
0: uh, that was true of the few Giant fans that were left when they left. Um, the Mets had a symbolic union of Giants and Dodgers fans when they opened Shay in 1962. So, is this That's your cool. first? Is this your first baseball book? My first, uh, which book? Is this your first book that you've written about baseball?
1: Absolutely not. Uh, I think it's number thirteen if you count co-authoring. Oh wow! So um, I've and it's mostly. Um, I mean, I've written a lot of different things over the years. Um, I started out in the '80s writing about the New York Yankees, not as a everyday beat reporter, but writing a column about them for a magazine. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of time in the press box and watching the. Um, You're too young to remember the mid-'80s Yankees, which had one of the best offenses I've ever seen. They had Ricky Henderson, Willie Randolph, Don Mattingly, Dave Winfield, Don Baylor. It was a great team, but they didn't
0: have enough pitching. Well, the mid-'80s, I was was a teenager, so I remember those guys. Um, Yeah, and they had trouble beating the Blue Jays.
1: Um, (laughs) uh, And um, so... uh, that was an interesting take on baseball. If you're, if you're a, there's an old saying: never get too close to something you love. In many ways, it's a little disillusioning to be really, really close. Uh, I respect baseball players very much. Um, baseball writers were sort of a uh, kind of a depressing group. Oh yeah. I remember once. Um, <laughs> well, they're surrounded by young, handsome, rich athletes. And they get a little jealous, a little bitter. And um, I remember watching a game once that was probably one of the most exciting games I've ever seen. And, you know, lead changing hand in the seventh, eighth, ninth, that went to extra innings. And then somebody hit a walk-off home run. I think it was Bobby Mercer. And all you heard was cursing in the press box and people throwing their stories away. (laughs) They already had them written, huh? I, I turned to the guy next to me, who I will not name, the daily news writer and said, what a great game! And he goes. The only great thing about a kid is that it's over. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, but oh, go ahead. Yes.
1: Anyway, um, you know that was fascinating. Um, seeing baseball that that close, and um, you know, a lot of baseball players are interesting people. Um, they're not all universally grown ups. Some are, some aren't. But um, the, I think fans. Don't, can't really relate to what the life is like for a professional athlete at that level. Yeah. You know, all of us all of us fans tend to think that they're a little bit like us and they're really not. Um, you know, the, the place you have to be to hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball and, and, and to play baseball, you have to be so single-minded and so mentally tough that they really live in, in almost another universe. Yeah, I bet. Now, the when I'm writing about baseball history, um, you know, it, baseball was uh, was invented by amateur players, by people like you and me, and that's the really interesting interesting thing about it for me. Um, the we tend to sort of look at all baseball history through the lens of the majors, and you know, the average fan probably doesn't know too much about what happened uh, before 1900, but The professional go back to 1871, but in 1871, baseball was a national sport uh, with championships and stars and baseball cards and, and newspaper coverage and everything else. And so the pros turned it into a business, but they didn't invent the sport at all. And, you know, I think historically we tend to pay a little too much attention to baseball for money. And originally that's not what it was about. You know, the people that invented it were, all had other jobs, careers, and professions. That's one of the fascinating things
0: about it. So I kind of read a little bit of that in the description of your book. I believe, I mean, it sounds familiar, so I know I had read it somewhere, but it said they were businessmen and it kind of got where people were so interested in it that they wanted to buy tickets. And that's kind of how they got the idea to start making money off of it.
1: Yeah, so the way, um, the short way to explain it is, so professional baseball starts in 1871. That was the first professional league. And um, In 1855, 16 years before that, if we got into a time machine and went to 1855, there's no really organized adult sports anywhere in the United States. Um, You know, one of the things the first things you learn when you go back in history is one of the challenges is you have to it makes your head hurt a little bit how to try and understand how the world was different so we take for granted that the way things are is the way things always were and america is a country that's you know loves sports we're really good at sports we're obsessed with sports um we get off that time machine in 1855 and there is virtually no organized sports. The the only really excuse for an organized sport is cricket, which is being played by the six percent of the United States that were English immigrants, mm-hmm. and that's a you know that's an organized sport. But Americans weren't very interested in that. A lot of them knew how to play it, but um, it, you know, adults playing baseball in a serious way was only happening in eighteen fifty five, basically in New York, Philadelphia, and Boston. And each one of those cities had a different bat and ball game. So the one we call baseball is used to be called the New York game. This was the New York version. Um, that's baseball. And virtually no one in the country, no one who lives in a rural place just has the time or the leisure to play baseball or any sport. And when you go into the city, If you have a, if you're a laborer, you have a menial job, um, you don't have time either. You're working six, 10 to 12 hour days. Mm -hmm. And nobody's playing anything on Sunday. Um, The wealthiest people, um, they had their own interests and most of them were things like yachting, horse racing, boxing, and they were, they liked to gamble. Um, So baseball kind of filled this space and the group that originally uh, organized it and promoted it, were uh, emerging prosperous middle class in those three cities, you know, principally in New York. And um, the interesting part is, uh, you know, this um, a lot of my friends were sort of teasing me about living through 2020 and all this trauma that we're having. And my head is in the 1850s and 40s in New York and uh, mid 19th century America. And the funny thing is, a lot of the same things were going on. So, if, if we went back in that time machine, we'd be seeing uh, epidemic disease is a big problem mm. in American cities in the mid 19th century. And so is uh, riots in the streets, racial conflict, um, civic disorder, um, police shooting at citizen militias, stuff that, you, that sounds kind of modern. Yeah. And that's what life was like there. It was very disorderly and. Um, So uh, this group of people, this prosperous sort of proto-middle class that's growing up in the cities, uh, they were interested in reform, and they were also interested in uniting the country, which they saw as very uh, disjointed. So each state, those three cities had their own baseball game. Each state was very culturally different, and baseball was... uh, something that New Yorkers had played, uh, children and, and adults had played casually going way back, but the idea of turning it into a national sport was something that just sprang up in the 1850s. Mm. If you go into newspapers and look for the phrase national sport, national pastime, you won't find it before 1855. So there's not even the idea that we have a national sport. So um, the story that I'm telling is, in a really fat, uh, short amount of time, Basically, fifteen years—a bunch of enterprising, socially ambitious, uh, fairly prosperous city Um, people—and the New Yorkers are the ones that won the argument over which kind of baseball to play. Mm -hmm. Um, They decide that what we need is a national sport, and the two main reasons for it—they have nothing to do with baseball as a business or as entertainment. The two main reasons for it are to unite the country. Hmm. And the other other things they're doing in their business lives are also aimed in that direction. A lot of the early baseball players are building railroads and telegraphs and publishing newspapers. Um, They're building industries and professions. Uh, They sort of saw it as a patriotic cause. We need to bring the country together. And the other thing was a health reason. And this is something that people have trouble understanding now. But if you read if you spend a little time with the newspapers of the 1830s, 40s, 50s, in any American city, um, you'd see waves of epidemic disease, and uh, people didn't understand how infection worked then, so it was very traumatic. Hmm. Um, you know, there were the, the phenomena of losing a child to diphtheria or yellow fever was very common, then. Um, and they were people were desperate for some kind of hope. and there was a public health reform movement that really started in England. That's where the YMCA comes from that said, um, you know, we need, we need exercise. We need to take better care of our bodies as a major component of it. We need sunshine, exercise, fresh air. Um, and it sounds a little to a modern person that sounds a little, um, simple minded or, or maybe silly because we know that, you know, cholera is caused by germs and, other diseases are caused by viruses and bacteria, but you know the things that they were
2: advocating aren't that different from some of the things we're hearing from public health officials now. You know, if you don't get enough sunlight, your vitamin D uh, is deficient, and that hurts your immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are obese and in, in terrible shape are more vulnerable to
1: COVID nineteen. This wouldn't surprise any of my baseball-playing doctors from 1855. And we're finding out that it's healthier to be outdoors than it is to be in an enclosed space. So, um, you know, they didn't totally understand how cholera and things like that work, but they they were right about physical fitness, mm-hmm. which is what they were promoting. So, to get to your question of fans and baseball as a business, the funny part is that ironic part is that that was never part of the plan of the people that were promoting baseball. So, baseball is the idea that we need a national sport and it should be an American sport, not a British sport. That idea comes out of New York city and Brooklyn in the 1850s. Um, and it, they eventually spread it around the country. And the, the these games that were played in Boston and Philadelphia were, were forgotten, but um, it never entered their mind that it was something you could make money off of, or that people would even watch it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in my book, and I found this fascinating, I, I tell the story of what happens. So the game, uh, the club, first clubs that we read about in the history books are organized in the 1840s and 50s in New York City. And Brooklyn was a separate city then, just to remind you. Mm-hmm. So um, they're in New York, and they're in the island of Manhattan, and they're toddling along and they're playing. And the clubs, you know, the ones you've heard of, the Knickerbockers, the Gothams, the Eagles, uh, if you're reading baseball history, those a lot of books will say those are the first clubs. They're not, but they're the first clubs that are of this type, that are organized in this way and played by these kinds of people. Um, the best way to understand them is that they're like a pickup game. So I play in a pickup game on Sunday morning in Brooklyn. The same guys show up at 8 or 8 in the morning. We always we form two teams. We play a game or 2 Mm-hmm. And we keep stats, and that's exactly how the Knickerbockers work. They hardly ever played another team. Ah, huh. yeah. So one of the questions I get asked a lot, if I'm talking about these early clubs, is, you know, for a while there was one New York baseball club in Boston, and people always raise their hand and say, "Who did they play?" Um, well, they played amongst themselves. That's that was normal. Yeah. And it's kind of funny in retrospect when you read game accounts in newspapers cause it starts to get covered in the newspapers in the 1850s, uh, their reaction when a few people show up to watch and they're baffled, you know, um, in, in for a long time, uh, there might be 20 or 30 people at a game, but they'd be friends of the players. There was a little bit of gambling. There were a couple of bookies. Um, but what really got baseball going as an entertainment business, uh, it happened in 1854, and it was Brooklyn, which was an up-and-coming, booming young city across the river from New York City, mm. decides they're kind of hot to compete with New York and everything. And they decide, we're going to beat them at their game, baseball. And so Brooklyn I start forming clubs in the middle and late 1850s, and very quickly, um, those clubs are competitive with the New York clubs, and then... In 1858, Brooklyn challenged the City Council of Brooklyn, challenges the City Council of New York to a best two out of three all-star series. And the world changes. And it changed because uh, the people who were running the thing didn't realize it right away, but they they noticed that there was tremendous public interest, and they started to worry about how many people were going to show up. Um, So they were going to have it in a park, which basically just had a diamond in the grass, no... There were no seating facilities, no ballparks, nothing like that. And then they started panicking when they thought maybe 5,000 people might show up. So they move it to a horse racing track in Queens because it has bathrooms and it has fences and stands. And between eight and 12,000 people show up. Hmm. And they, they charged admission with the idea that they had to pay the horse track for the damage they were doing to the grass. They charged 10 cents. The lowest admission rate was ten cents, and this is actually the first time anyone in American
0: history paid to see a sporting event. So I have a few questions for you. Sure, because you're rolling along here. But so, <clears throat> first question, just real simple: When did they start calling it baseball? How did they come up with that?
1: Well, that um, it was two words, by the way, in the 19th century, and. Uh, The game had a lot of names, but the New York version was known as base or baseball, and it was spelled in different ways. Um, And I can't answer the question, when did they start? Because um, I was saying that baseball sort of emerged in the 1840s and 50s. And what that means is it was being covered in the paper. And before that, it existed. And yet we sort of, I call it the dark ages. Yeah, We don't know too many people. We don't know exactly who was playing it, and we don't know exactly what was going on, uh, what the club names were, but there is enough evidence that we know it was played by a lot of people. For instance, you can find an announcement in the eighteen in, in eighteen twenty-two thereabouts. that two clubs, whose names mean nothing to us, are playing at a certain place. Yeah. And one thing that's obvious is that if no one knew what baseball was, that's that wouldn't make any sense.
0: So you're, yeah, cause you were saying earlier, like the New York game or whatever. So I was just curious. Yeah. So the, right. So the other parts of the country called the New York game, because to them it was the
1: the way New Yorkers played a bat ball game. Oh, okay. They might've seen, they might've seen cricket. They might've seen in Philadelphia, there was a thing called town ball that was baseball like, but different in many ways. And, in Boston, there was a game called the Massachusetts game that was sometimes called baseball or, or round ball. Um, these things are all dinosaurs. They all died out because the New York game swept over the whole country in this 15 year period. But, um, the, uh, we sort of, you sort of, if you, as you go back earlier in the 1840s and 50s, you, you're dealing with sort of the, um, equivalent of uh, an archaeological site
0: with with broken bits of pottery and you're trying to figure out what did they use this for and who were they Hmm. there's not a lot of information so another thing that you had said was that they kept the stats in the newspaper they were putting the stats in the newspaper but nope they really didn't have fans
1: well um, those things go together so that's a good question so the more fan interest there is the more newspaper interest there is but the And there was a transition as people got more interested in it. But, uh, the, for instance, the Knickerbockers, they're the most famous early club. We actually have a lot of their um, records, and we have their score sheets. And they kept score sheets. They played two times a week, and they would keep score sheets of every game. But for a long time, no one else was interested at all. So they weren't in the paper. Um, they started appearing in the paper. There's definitely a connection between inter-club play, one club playing another, and that always attracted more public interest, and it started to attract newspaper interest in the 1840s and 50s, But and increasingly as that period goes on, but um, the sort of amusing thing to me is that the baseball players themselves didn't seem to notice because to them it was about something that they were doing with their friends, and they weren't terribly interested in beating the other clubs. That was sort of a side thing. You know, mm. They the Dickerbockers at one point played about 200 games and maybe three or four of them were with other clubs. Mm. Um, so even though the public is sort of showing that they have an interest in this, uh, the baseball's not really responding to it. And there's a, there's a period where that's going on. And then, so what really changed was when Brooklyn takes up the game and Brooklyn is, you know, expressly competitive with New York. And um, what you start seeing in the 1857, eight, nine, whenever a Brooklyn club and a New York club are playing, um, there's an unusual turnout. And it's to us the most obvious thing in the world, right? It's why wouldn't you and I be interested in two good baseball teams playing against each other, especially representing competing communities or cities. Right. But nobody understood what was even going on, and some of the sports writers were actually frightened by this. Henry Chadwick, who was the most prominent sports writer of the time, he he was terrified that gamblers would take over baseball, and as they had other sports, and when he saw the, he saw thousands of people showing up, and he saw them rooting. And there's something funny about it to a modern person because they're describing normal fan behavior. Yeah. You know, the, the umpire calls a close one against the Knickerbockers, and everybody boos. Or, um, you know, they're angry at the ump. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he's terrified. You know, there's, it's, it's actually kind of fascinating. And, you know, late in the amateur period, a lot of smart enterprising people figured out, hey, this could be a business. In 1862, a guy in Brooklyn who was actually a leather manufacturer opens a ballpark he builds a ballpark with stands and refreshment and a nice manicured baseball diamond. And he charges people 10 cents to come in and he lets the ball, baseball clubs use it for free. And it didn't take them long to figure out they were being taken advantage of. Yeah. That was a good idea. Yeah. It's people outside of baseball that sort of saw the commercial potential. So the people that wanted to make baseball the national pastime succeeded, but, the two little bonus things that happened totally without them intending for them to happen were fans and money.
0: Right. So I had a a question for you that's kind of on the fun side. I'm just curious. Have you ever seen the movie Ridiculous 6? No. Is it a baseball movie? It's not a baseball movie, but they they run into this guy that gets them... They need directions or something and he gets them to play baseball for the first time. And as, as they go along, he's changing the rules. So, I mean, it's just a funny, it's just a funny way to show how the, I think the guy's supposed to be Abner Doubleday, but it's, uh, it's real funny. I mean, uh, you should, you um, you should Google it, check it out. I will. The, the, the famous Bob Newhart bit from the early sixties. You ever heard that? Hmm. So he's, um, I mean, this I tell the story in my book because it kind of has a point.
1: You know, baseball fans think someone invented baseball because they heard the after a double-day story, and if they've heard that but that's not true, they think that Alexander Cartwright or the Knickerbockers invented baseball. Um, if, you know, on June 19th of this year, or if you were looking anywhere on the Internet, you saw people talk about the first baseball game happened in 1846 on June 19th, none of which is true. Um, but so people have this idea that someone invented baseball and and Newhart imagines Abner Doubleday. What, what if he, what if, what what if that actually was true? And and Abner Doubleday has invented the game. One person just thinking it up, which of course is kind of absurd. Yeah. And he, he calls a game manufacturer and explains to him about my new game that I want to sell. And that's the joke because it's so ridiculous, right? Yeah. Um, so, okay, we got a, we got a pitcher and we have a catcher and a batter. So the pitcher I get, and the pitcher throws the ball to the catcher, and the batter tries to hit it, and Mr. Doubleday, what are the other guys doing? And he says, um, well, eight of them are, are sitting down, and, and seven of them are standing there. <laughs> 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 and you say, oh, this just doesn't sound that great. But um, you know, the reason I told the story in my book is that, that kind of zeroes in on the absurdity that one person thought of the game because that's not what happened even remotely. You know, things like baseball evolve over a long period of time and and they're never invented by one person. Um, And I know what you're going to ask me
0: next. What?
1: Why? Why tell those stories? Because that's a part of the story that I tell in that book. These stories weren't told because anybody believed them. So in, in the very beginning, even as early as the 1850s, uh, baseball, the people promoting baseball were saying that the knickerbockers were the first club. They were founded in 1845 or six and that they invented, they wrote the first rules and they knew that stuff wasn't true. And why were they telling that story? And then later in 1908, professional baseball comes up with the after Double Doubleday story mm-hmm. and, and they knew that wasn't true. Um, so why were they telling these stories? And, uh, The short answer is uh, they're trying to create a national sport, and America is so, has such a sort of fragile sense of itself and so much hostility toward England that we cannot accept cricket as a national sport. Ironically, you know, dozens of former English colonies play cricket today. Hmm. And we just felt like we're not playing an English sport. I mean, in the 1840s, the British had burned the White House you know, a generation earlier, and we were still afraid of England, their political and military power. Um, we had kind of a love-hate relationship with the motherland, and the idea of an English sport was unacceptable. So it had to be American, and of course the surest way to sell it as American is to say that an American
0: invented it on a particular day.
2: Hmm.
0: Because that takes care of the whole question of where did it come from. Well, Tom, I need to take a quick break real quick. So we'll be right back, folks. You're listening to Astros Baseball with guest Tom Gilbert. All right, folks, we are back with Tom Gilbert, author of How Baseball Happened. Okay, during the break, I got my next question ready. Uh, So everyone, including myself, before speaking with you believes Abner Doubleday invented baseball. And so you're saying that he didn't, and it would have been impossible, and I totally agree with that. But why Why did they pick this guy? Like, why is Abner Doubleday the guy that is, that is credited in history for creating it?
1: Well, it's a great question, and uh, I don't know if you're going to like the answer, but um – the, what happened was, in 1905, um, Henry Chadwick, that man I mentioned earlier, he was sort of the most prominent advocate for baseball uh, in journalism at the time, and was a great, famous sports writer in the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born in England. He came to Brooklyn when he was 13, and um, a serious person, and uh, his opinion is worthy of being taken seriously, but... He had a theory that baseball had evolved from an English game called Rounders. and If any of your listeners have ever spent any time reading about early history of baseball, they've probably read that baseball came from this game, Rounders, or it might have. Mm -hmm. And uh, it didn't. It might be related to it distantly, but there's a lot of very strong evidence that there's no direct line of descendants there. Um, But I said before that America was... You know, one of the things about America that's hardest for us to really relate to mid-19th century America from the point of view of of the time we're living in now is the anti-Englishness and the nativism of the United States. Um, We tend to, you know, we know that there was anti-Irish feeling. People aren't so acquainted with how intense the fear and hatred of the English was in many parts of society. Um, You know, we had just fought two wars against them. And two, and you know, one of them was particularly bloody. Um, 1812, they burned the White House down. Um, so we have a kind of combination of a sense of inferiority about them, and a fear of them, and a desire to make our own mark on the world. So, um, just to give you one example of people asking well, how how intense was this anti-English feeling in a place like New York in the 1840s? Um, Look up the Astor Theater Riot of 1849. It sounds kind of silly, the theater riot. In 1849, uh, two actors who, one was considered, Ned Forrest was considered the greatest American Shakespearean actor, and William McCready was considered the greatest English Shakespearean actor. They happened to be both in Lower Manhattan playing Macbeth on the same night. And it got political there was a class dimension to it too. These sort of upper classes of New York were very Anglophile and they tended to support the English guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you wouldn't think that blood would be spilled over who was the greatest actor. And yet it was. So a uh, nativist tried, a riot uh, rioted it and stopped the performance of the English actor. And the mayor of New York called out the national guard. And by the end of the evening, they had uh, wounded a hundred and killed 30. So and things like this is not an isolated incident. You know, there are nativist riots in Philadelphia in the eighteen forties, and the um, there were uh, civic organizations. Everyone in mid nineteenth century America belonged to a. If you were able bodied and male, you belonged to a militia because we didn't have a standing army. Um, a lot of them forbid; uh, they would they would
0: exclude you if you were born. Outside the United States, even people who were born in England and came when they were a year old Mm -hmm. were excluded. Um, They'd be saying, We're all native born Americans. It's maybe if you saw the gangs of New York, you got a taste of that kind of world. Yeah. Although that's not 100% accurate,
1: but um, it's sort of, you moved it forward in time a bit. But um, there's all this anti Englishness. And well, um, Henry Chadwick is going around saying, in, in the early 1900s, that our national sport derived from an English game, which is played by children and, and girls, <laughs> rounders. My mother-in-law in the West Indies played rounders. <laughs> um, and there, Americans take this as a slight. Um, and Albert Spaulding and Henry Chadwick have some public debates. Chadwick doesn't take it terribly seriously, but Spaulding appoints a blue-ribbon commission to get to the bottom of this and uh, it's like a lot of blue ribbon commissions. You know, the conclusion was foreordained. They were supposed to prove that baseball was American and nothing to do with England. And it was, the whole thing was, uh, you know, not, a, it was not a serious attempt to look into the origins of baseball. Um, and they just looked seized on the, any evidence they could, that anybody had invented it. who was American. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, the story, if you ever, uh, you know, if you get into it, is that um, some crackpot wrote that. Well, in 1839, I was in Cooperstown, and this guy Abner Doubleday uh, came up with a diagram of a diamond. And there's a whole story that he told, and they just decided to believe it. And I think the short answer to why Doubleday is that it, it doesn't matter. It just had to be
0: somebody who was American. Was he a real person? Oh, he was a real person, and because the name and, sounds fake. It sounds too much like a, a baseball game, a baseball name. It sounds too fake.
1: Well, his, uh, I think it was great, great nephew, bought part of the Mets in 1980, Nelson. But Doubleday himself, the funny, here's the funny part. Um, I mean, he was a war hero. If you said the name after Doubleday in 1900, people would say, oh, you know, he, he distinguished himself at the Battle of Gettysburg and he was an effective commander. So that kind of underlined the, it sort of put a little bit of a patriotic barrier in front of people who wanted to question the story. But, I mean, I I do believe that they literally would have picked anybody, but Doubleday was a good choice because he was a respected person who had died in 1893 and couldn't give interviews saying that he hadn't invented baseball. Hmm. The weird part is, this is called the Mills Commission that Spalding appointed, and it was the chairman was a guy named A.G. Mills, who was a lifelong baseball guy, and he was actually close friends with Abner Doubleday, so he would have known better than anyone that Doubleday had even not even a normal level of interest in baseball. He
0: <laughs> never had any relationship with baseball. So the guy they give credit for inventing baseball didn't even wasn't even part of it.
1: No, and that's kind of funny. Um, the um, that no, no, most people don't really believe that story anymore. It's sort of sitting in the back of our heads. Uh, I have, you know. Had, at places where I've given tours or lectures about baseball history, I've had people scratching their heads and saying, okay, I get that it was exaggerated or it's not completely true, but how could it be completely 100% false? I have trouble imagining it.
0: Yeah. But it's completely 100% false.
1: And the the if you've heard of Alexander Cartwright and the Knickerbocker Club, um, they're real people too, and... That is sort of the version of Who Invented Baseball that most people believe today. It sort of replaced the Double Day version. Um, it was actually the original origin story and made a comeback after people began to realize how the Double Day thing was so obviously false. I mean, the, the people in the um, Baseball Hall of Fame, you know, don't. It's been decades since they tried to even link at the Double
0: Day story. Huh.
1: Nobody advocates for it anymore. But a lot of people believe the Cartwright-Nickerbocker story. And if you read my book, you'll find out that they were important, but they did not invent baseball in any way. It's an example of,
0: I guess it's an example of ask the wrong question get the wrong answer. Yeah. So if you say, you know, who invented rock and roll, um, you might get an answer, but it's not going to be true because nobody invented it. It just happened. So, the in the Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame, did, is there a story or anything in there that says how baseball started? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the, the National Baseball Hall of Fame and the library, there um, they're serious scholars, and they have exhibits about the amateur period and stuff. But, the you know, historically, the, their mission has been centered on professional baseball. Um, they used to be kind of coy about the Doubleday thing, but I'm talking... Most of my lifetime, and I'm 62. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they haven't—they haven't—it they haven't, um, pushed it in any way because it's—you know—they're—they're they're serious, serious historians. Well, I like the Abner Doubleday story. It just, it just has a good ring to it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> you know, they're not the only two people that have been called father of baseball. I have a chart in my book where I list all 13 that I know of. People that were seriously called the father of baseball at one time or another.
0: And you you talked earlier about somebody with the last name Spaulding. Does he have anything to do with the uh, athletic equipment, or that's just yeah? He founded that company. Oh, okay. Spaulding,
1: who was the father of the Doubleday myth. Um, he was a guy who was uh, he was a uh, kid in Rockford, Illinois, and when the Civil War ended. And um, he was a great athlete and he ended up being a pitcher with his, in his teens for the local team called the Rockford forest cities. It was just an insignificant town team mm-hmm. and in 1867, if I remember right, but he goes to a tournament in Chicago and he beats, yes, it was 67. He beats, uh, the Washington Nationals, which were one of the great Eastern teams that was touring the Midwest and destroying everybody. And um, there was a national scandal because fans were always seeing gambling in the woodwork, and they thought that these nobodies couldn't be good enough to beat the Nationals, and it must have been the throne game. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that Albert Spalding, who was a nobody then, um, there were a couple other great players on the team, uh, was actually a fantastic
0: athlete, and he ends up um, – pitching for the Boston Red Stockings in the first professional league and was called the National Association and pitched into the National League for Boston. And um, I don't have his pitching stats off the top of my head, but I believe he has a higher war than Whitey Ford or Sandy Koufax. A great pitcher. So what you years, know. let me ask you this, yeah. sorry. What what years does your book cover?
1: Well, um, it covers from sort of the, uh, the, 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 I'm really focusing on that 15-year period. The book ends in 1870-71. Okay. When baseball, uh, uh, you know, the professional league startup, the first national professional league. mm -hmm. And um, the, uh, you know, the way the historians usually tell the story is that amateur baseball sort of served its purpose and died. And now we have serious professional baseball. But I always felt like that was wrong, because in, at the, in the last chapter of my book, I imagine some of the people I've been writing about, if they could see the world as it is now. And um, the truth is that a lot more people play amateur baseball and softball than professional by a massive factor. And the if remember what I said, the purpose of baseball, making baseball the national sport, in the minds of the people that did it, was to get Americans to exercise for their health and to be a unifying national institution, Mm -hmm. which, you know, was a problem when the Civil War happened, but that's another chapter. Um, But eventually the the nation was brought together by baseball. Um, And in my uh, fantasy about the founding fathers of baseball coming uh, to the year 2020 and looking around, they'd be delighted not just that so many men, women, and children play softball and baseball, mm-hmm. but that it spread around the world and that we play other sports because baseball was, they were searching for a sport that would get people to exercise and they'd be delighted that, you know, we're now this sports mad country where yeah. uh, almost everyone has uh, an interest in, in playing golf, playing tennis, whatever. Um, they would see that amateur baseball is a huge success. not something that, you know, to, died in 1870 or 71. And to them, professional leagues would be sort of a a sideshow. Like playing it for money wasn't the point for
0: them. So when you were doing the research for your book, did you look at old newspapers, like at the library or museums? Did you interview anybody for the book? Um,
1: I didn't interview anyone. Um, But, you know, I've been researching this for decades, really, and I've written several books on early baseball, but, um, you know, what I basically learned in my previous books was that there were all these big questions that were unanswered, and big questions like, why baseball and not cricket, or why do we need a national sport, what was the, uh, you know, what was the point of it, mm-hmm. um, why did the New York game went out of the other games, all these important questions, um, and the answers Sports historians tend to look a little too closely at sports. And the answers were in who the people were that played it. And so when I immersed myself in their lives and learned more about them, and, you know, in my story, uh, a hefty percentage of the people whose stories I'm telling in my book, you know, fought in the Civil War. Um, these were not living in sort of a, uh, a bubble like professional athletes do now. You know, they were participating in, I mentioned all these cutting edge industries, but there were certain industries that predominated among baseball players, and they were the ones that were also bringing the country together, mm-hmm. the communication and transportation. Um, and then baseball stops and everyone goes to war. And that's a fascinating thing in itself because um, baseball had spread to places that had economic relationships with New York, like New Orleans, principally. Yeah. It was played in Savannah and Charleston, uh, because New Yorkers did business there. That's almost always the answer. When you find an early baseball club and you're wondering, why is it there? You know, why is it in Buffalo before it's in, you know, Trenton, say. And the reason is that New Yorkers are going there on business. They're going on the Erie canal. They're, they're trading, um, Later, they're laying down railroad tracks and telegraph lines. Um, but the, um, the Civil War presented a huge problem for the project of unifying the country with baseball because the country was so divided. And uh, there was a period after the war ended when, um, you know, the baseball was uh, starting to pick up the pieces in the South. It had been behind the North. But it, there was a lot of people in the baseball world in the South who looked at uh, baseball as a northern institution. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you know the the New Yorkers were very nervous about this. The New Yorkers that were running baseball is saying, you know, to a Richmond club, why don't you join the our National Baseball Association? And they're saying, you know, because we're Southerners, we have no interest in your Yankee uh, <laughs> organization. <laughs> And that was something that really worried um, uh, the people that were promoting baseball, and it actually caused the baseball to um, exclude African-Americans for longer. Because that was seen as a wedge issue that could destroy
0: the whole movement. So I don't know if this next question is going to be a left turn in the conversation, but we were talking earlier, and you said you had something interesting to say about modern pitching. Yeah, so I wanted to make sure we got that yeah, in before we run out of time. A,
1: that's a good thing. That's a particularly interesting part of the book to me. Um, so back to our time machine, back to the eighteen fifties. If we went to a baseball game, what would we see? We'd see um, it would be obviously baseball, but we'd see a pitcher throwing underhanded very softly, basically serving it to the batter. Oh and wow. The ball the ball would be very lively. They used a lot of rubber in it. So he's hitting it really hard and nobody has any gloves. So try to sort of picture of this. Mm-hmm. And then you'll understand that, you know, there were games that were one sixty five 65 to 40. <laughs> <laughs> There's no home run fence, but the ball is being smacked all over the place. There's a gazillion errors. Literally everyone was playing barehanded and think about being a barehanded catcher for a second with no padding whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys were, were, were incredibly tough. Um so the rule book said that the pitcher had to throw the ball and I won't bore you with the details, but the motion that was required was the kind of motion you use to pitch a horseshoe. You have to have a stiff wrist and you have to have your arm directly underhand and you can't jerk the ball or try to spin it. Huh. So so think about how fast you could throw a ball like that. I'm figuring maybe forty if you're lucky. And uh, as the athletic level of baseball players improved, um, these guys are are just destroying the pitchers. There's no fair fight between pitchers and hitters. Yeah. And then this changed because of one guy, and it's a little bit of a mystery what he did. But his name was Jim Creighton, and he was a teenager, and he was 17 years old in 1858, and he was discovered by the Brooklyn Excelsiors, which was one of the first clubs in Brooklyn, um, and it's kind of fascinating. We People argue about what he was doing, but we know the effect of what he was doing, which was that he was unhittable. And we know we have descriptions of what he was doing with the ball. But the part that we can't figure out is, uh, he was obviously throwing very, very fast with a lot of command and a lot of movement. And obviously there's no film or video. Um, the question you know we all have is, was he pitching according to the rules? It seems impossible. That he mm-hmm. could throw that hard, and was he throwing any kind of breaking pitch? But he was completely dominant, and we know that pitchers at that time ran up to a line to throw the ball like uh, a modern cricket bowler, mm-hmm. but he didn't, which is a clue. So he just took one stride. He put his—he's right-handed. He put his left foot wrapped around his right foot behind him and then he kind of untwisted and fired the ball. And we know he threw it from very low. So he was probably getting a lot of hip action into the pitch. Um but he people describe like an unhittable rising fastball with a lot of movement. That's what the hitters describe. Huh. And I used to think that it was ridiculous that he threw a curveball and I'm starting to change my mind because having read enough descriptions of it and realizing that um well, before something is known, right? If if a guy threw the first curveball, how are people going to react to it? They're not going to say, "Oh, that's the first curveball." Yeah. They're going to say, "What the hell is?" That? <laughs> right? Yeah. So they do, and and the descriptions suggest that maybe he was throwing an underhand curveball, which can be an effective pitch, right? It's used in fast pitch softball. Mm-hmm. It's obviously more effective to throw an overhand, but. You know, the, when you read games' descriptions of what Creighton would do to people, um, he went down to Baltimore in 1862 and played, um, uh, I'm not sure if I have the year right, but in the early 1860s, he goes down to Baltimore and they play a team down there, and the, the Baltimore writer is just shaking his head because the Baltimore hitters are swinging after the catcher has got the ball. They just can't pick it up. Dang. And they win something like fifty one to nine, and the writer for one of the Baltimore papers says it was pretty obvious that the Excelsiors could have scored a lot more if they felt like it. Wow. So so the result of that is, interestingly enough, is well, let's say you're a hitter and you're used to getting the ball laid in there at forty and some guy's coming along throwing in the eighties thing with movement. Um well there was one thing I forgot to mention that wasn't part of baseball then, which is there was no strike zone. So the pitchers were
0: more or less on their honor to throw the ball in there. Ah. And what people did when they couldn't hit Creighton,
1: and it didn't take them long to figure out that they couldn't hit him, was not swing. And we have pitch counts from some of his games, things like crazy pitch counts, 70, 80, 90 pitches in an inning, you know, into the 300s.
0: So you could just sit there and wait for a pitch you wanted to hit?
1: You could, yeah. And then, So that was a problem because the games took forever and it was boring. And the rules committee started saying, well, the umpire can now warn you. If you're doing that too much, he can warn you by calling strike one. But that meant, you know, you take 15 pitches and you go, come on, strike one. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happened. And the umpires didn't want to do it because they weren't used to it. And it took... Until the mid 1860s or later, before umpires started regularly doing it. And then there's the corollary, which is uh, what about pitchers who don't care if they throw strikes? So you have to start calling balls. That's the next logical conclusion. There were pitchers who would just throw right at the batter and scare him to death. Mm -hmm. And then they'd throw it over the plate and the guy would, you know, uh, step his foot in the bucket and miss. So interestingly, it was one person's innovation. This guy, Jim Creighton, that leads to the strike zone. And that's pretty amazing because the strike zone is what baseball is all about. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Without the, the strike zone, is the center of the action, it, if you think about it, it's the main thing that makes baseball interesting on television. Right?
0: Yes, it is. You can't, you can't see outfield defense on television, but you can see what the pitcher and the batter are doing when they're fighting over the strike zone. See, I had no idea. At the beginning, there was no strike zone. They just threw it 90 times an inning. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, they just chuck it and and duck. And um, it's kind of funny that 19... Well, unfortunately, Creighton, um, he died in 1862 at 21. Wow. And what he died of was a complication from a hernia that... Here's the one uh, I didn't interview any uh, 19th century ballparks, but I interviewed some orthopedists, and they told me that um, it's very likely that the huge pitching load that he carried contributed to his death and all that twisting. Yeah, plus he was one of the first players to lift weights, which is a
0: if you know anything about those kind of hernias, it's not what you want to be doing a lot of. Yeah, um, so. I mean, I have a sentence where uh, I say Creighton this invented underhand pitching, and it killed him. And it's not really too far off. So, is it is it very soon after this that they start throwing it overhand? How many years is it after that? Does it? That came in gradually. Um, they were still throwing underhand in the eighteen nineties, but the arm angles were gradually rising, and they were rising because of curveballs. And you can see how that would work. So, a big problem with You know movement on a pitch breaking or otherwise is that the catcher has to be able to stop it so if your catcher is barehanded in the 1860s and 70s it's one thing to be able to throw a curveball in the dirt or you know a fastball with a lot of movement or a cutter or something but if the guy can't stop it you can't throw it so what you saw was you saw in the late 19th century
1: Catchers like Deacon White figuring out how to stop these pitches. They were also the guys that taught them to pitchers. They were sort of pitching coaches. And, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the higher your arm angle, the more effective the curveball is going to be. Because you you get not just movement and change of speed, but you get down action. Hmm. So that was a long, long period. So there there were still people throwing underhand in the 1880s and probably into the O's. But the rule book doesn't help much. But if you, you know, if you study baseball history, you can see that arm angles are rising and people are breaking the rules. Then the rules get rewritten and then they go a little bit higher. And that's what was happening. Um, but the Creighton, the Creighton story, um, I mean, to me, the fact that he's not in the hall of fame is, I don't know if shocking is a good enough word, but, you know, to be not only a great player and a dominant player, although for a short time, but, to change the game that much, you know, what they Ruth it doesn't even really compare to
0: being personally responsible for the strikes zone coming in. Yeah, there seems like there's a possibility if it wasn't for this guy, they could still be playing underhand pitch softball. <laughs> it's possible. I mean, underhand softball,
1: I mean, the fast pitch softball is a lot more like baseball was in the 19th century than hardball today is. Um. And I ran across something funny when I was researching Creighton, which is it started me thinking about the curveball issue because, uh, I, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm, i always wondered why he didn't run up to the line like he was allowed to. And I don't know how much baseball you played, but I was a pitcher, and you can't break off a curveball
2: without stopping. Mm-hmm. Right? You—if you, you try to imagine in your head running and throwing a curveball, it's not really going to work. Yeah at the very least it will be very hard to do so I think he may have taken this one stride
1: so he could break off a breaking case and um, in 1937 the Hall of Fame is getting started there's articles in the newspaper about it and I just ran across this by accident and somebody in the Hall who's the Hall of Fame opened in the late 30s and somebody's talking about it in the newspaper and they say that we're going to honor Candy Cummings as the inventor of the curveball yeah, I don't know if you've heard that name, but a lot yeah. of baseball history books say he invented the curveball in the late 1860s. So, Jim Creighton's nephew, who was a stockbroker living in suburban New Jersey, wrote a letter to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle and said, uh, Candy Cummings didn't invent the curveball, my uncle did. Hmm. <laughs> and he says, you know, uh, but people at the time didn't know what it was. Yeah, That's what he says. And I... Didn't take that seriously the first time I read it, but I'm starting to wonder.
0: Well, Tom, we are less than a minute away from running out of time. So I want to thank you for coming on. It was very interesting. I think I could actually have you back someday because you wrote more books. I think we could have some more conversation. I
1: would be delighted.
0: So tell everybody where they can find your book before we go. Well,
1: you can pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, a lot of places. They're a good place to start. Um,
0: it comes out um, in September.
1: September 8th is still on schedule to come out on September 8th, and it can be pre ordered now. Um, there's a website which uh, is linked to the tweet you put out today
0: uh, mm-hmm And uh, so um, you should all go and buy it. All right, Tom. Thanks for listening, folks.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Make sure to subscribe so that way you will be alerted when there is a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot.